Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Why download the app? Because life is messy. We get stressed, anxious, have trouble sleeping, we work too hard, we deal with conflict, our hearts get broken, we worry about the state of the world. We meditate because we're human. Our app gives you hundreds of meditations from over 30 leading experts. It helps a lot. And if you haven't tried the app yet, you can now try it for free and explore a starter series plus a sample of some of our favorite guided meditations in the Discover Collection. You may also want to check out our new meditation collections this year. Mindful eating, work, authentic leadership, and a special collection just for college students. There's also a new mindful work and sleep basics course. If you've already got the app, check out our new unguided meditation timer where you can create your own meditations with or without our brand new, pretty amazing music tracks. And don't forget the eight free meditations on Alexa. Just ask her to enable Meditation Studio. This week's guest is Natalie Kogan, author of the new book, Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments, Even the Difficult Ones. It's a book about living fully in the good times and bad and enjoying life more because you've embraced all of your feelings. Natalie talks about the idea that happiness doesn't come to us when something happens, but that it's within us and a choice that we make, even a mindset that we can learn, or as she says, a teachable mental skill. Natalie was a Russian refugee and came to the U.S. in her early teens. The challenges that she and her family faced led her to ambitiously strive for what she called the good life and all that she believed that entailed. More money, more stuff, bigger jobs, and the list went on. Natalie learned the hard way that those things didn't make her happy and that running from her feelings of anxiety and self-doubt did not help her feel any better either. She had to embrace all of her messy emotions. I love her insights in this interview, and my favorite part of the book is at the end where she writes a letter to her young daughter with advice called 40 Things I Learned About Living Happier and More Fully. It's priceless. The book is chock full of practices that changed Natalie's life, and I think they're pretty transformative too. Now, here's Natalie. Natalie, thank you so much for being on Untangle today. We're so excited to have you. And I'm so grateful to be here. Yay. We're excited about your new book called Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments, Even the Difficult Ones. And what I would love for you to do is to tell us a little bit about your origin story coming to the U.S. from Russia and your stops in between and sort of what it was like as a child for you having that experience. Mm. Yeah. And it's, I always, uh, when I give talks, I do a lot of talks to companies or people, I start my story about learning how to be happier with our immigration and becoming a refugee. And I say that I start out with probably the most difficult thing I've ever gone through. So I was half child, half adult. So I was 13 when my parents and I escaped. So we're Jewish. And in Russia, being a Jew at that time was not an easy 
thing. There was a lot of persecution. So we left with my parents. We were allowed to bring two suitcases per person and $200 per person. Everything else was had to stay behind. So financially, it was this huge risk that my parents took, but it was even more the uncertainty of it. So we left. We lived in refugee settlements in uh, Vienna and then in a little town in Italy for several months. And that's where the Americans had set up these refugee settlements. And we stayed there awaiting permission to come to the United States as refugees. My memory from that was just avoidance. I, as much as I could, wanted to avoid feeling the stress that was filling my parents. I didn't know what to do with any of those feelings, with their feelings, with my own confusion and anxiety. And we were excited, of course, but we had no idea if we would even get here. And eventually we did. To this day, so grateful. We got permission to come as refugees and we came and we settled in the project, public housing outside of Ann Arbor, outside of Detroit. And very grateful to get food stamps and welfare just to get our lives started from scratch. We didn't speak a lot of English. If you can think back to your eighth grade years, we're not the kindest. The two outfits to my name, weird cloth sneakers, hardly spoken English. Whatever I spoke was with this horrible Russian accent. So my classmates had a lot of fun at my expense and it was really painful. And I didn't know what to do with any of those feelings because I come from a very loving family, but we're not a family that talks about feelings. And so my parents and I didn't talk about the difficulties we were both going through. They were trying to get jobs. I was getting made fun of in school. And on top of that, I was a great student in Russia. And all of a sudden I was put in remedial English because I couldn't understand. So I had all these feelings of fear and overwhelming. I didn't know how to talk about them or process them. So my only idea was to escape them. And first I tried to escape them just by like zoning out and eating a lot of American cereal. We got all these donation boxes and the only highlight of my day was Rice Krispie cereal. We didn't have cereal in Russia. So I would just try to drown in Rice Krispie cereal. And I thought, wow, this is the American dream. And if I become happy, then that will justify all the struggle that my parents and I have gone through. And my idea of happiness was this blissful state where everything is perfect. I'm perfect. Everything's amazing. I've achieved a lot. I've shown that our struggle is worth it. I'm taking care of my family and everything is amazing. And so I set my sights on this. I call it the state of the big happy. And the way that I thought of getting there was by achieving things. And my first achievement was learning how to speak English like an American. I went crazy and eventually I did get rid of my accent. It did make life easier. My classmates stopped making fun of me. I got out of remedial English and started doing well in school, but it didn't erase all the other issues, making friends, et cetera. And so I just set my sights on the next achievement. And the next achievement was I graduated third in my class in high school and got all these awards. And that felt amazing. And I would look at my parents at the award ceremony. We'd be in this bubble of pure joy. And that felt amazing. And I was like, okay, I just have to blow as many of these bubbles as possible. And I went on for 20 years having a very successful career as an entrepreneur, technologist, investor. And on the outside, I married my college sweetheart. I took care of my family. I had a beautiful daughter. On the outside, I was blowing all these happiness bubbles that should have made me happy. That's what I thought happiness was. And yet that didn't actually remove any of those feelings I was trying to run from. That didn't actually remove any of the self-doubt or anxiety or fear. And so you asked a question about my origin story. I know I jumped ahead a lot, but that's why really I go back all the way there. I actually had to go back all the way there to learn a very powerful lesson that I share in my book about what it actually means to be happier. And that 
it doesn't mean that you never feel pain and that a happiness is not void of what we call negative emotions. It actually is the process of embracing all of our emotions and giving ourselves permission to experience all of our emotions, including the difficult ones. And from that point of giving ourselves permission and not punishing ourselves, So when you were in eighth grade, kids were bullying you and you were feeling nervous and anxious and you were watching your parents try to get jobs in a new country and just so many new things. Is that when you sort of set your mind on, I'm going to just make good things happen and you pushed away all of those other feelings? Because most people would move into the happy bubbles and feel really good about that. So what was your struggle with that? The struggle with that was that the happy bubbles kept popping. I know it's not unique to me. I'll be happy when the kids are not making fun of me. I'll be happy when we move out of the projects and have like a normal apartment. And there's nothing wrong with thinking that way, except when you get there, when we get to the I'll be happy when, that happiness bubble, our brain naturally adapts to it very quickly. I say that the curse and the blessing of our brain is that it's very adaptable. We adapt to the good and the bad. And so when we get to that milestone that we thought would make us so happy or the goal or whatever it is, for a while we do feel really great and it feels awesome. But then our brain adapts and that new thing that was so amazing is the new normal. That's one of the big issues with our I'll be happy when thinking. And that's why someone asked me the other day, like if I could summarize my mission in life in a very short phrase, I would say my mission is to help people to stop thinking I'll be happy when. So when did you first discover that all of these things that had been making you happy and all of your happy bubbles weren't making you happy? Did you have some kind of a crash or was it a realization or an aha moment? When did you realize that all these beautiful things that were happening were not making you happy? It's a great question because the answer is both. I did have an experience that I'll share that kind of forced me to face my truth, but it was there all along. So even when the happen, you know, when I would achieve something and I would feel amazing, there was always that underlying fear of that going away. You know how sometimes where things are good, but you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so you're not actually allowing yourself to feel the goodness, whatever the goodness is. Yeah. You know that it's going to end, right? So I think instinctively or intuitively, we all know that there's this risk. If we hang our happiness on things on the outside, we know there's always that risk that the bubble will pop and it'll go away. And so The entire time that I was chasing my big happy through blowing happiness bubbles of achievements and taking care of my family, I never actually felt the joy of the good moments all the way because I knew it would pop. So I knew I'd have to keep chasing them. And so I always had this underlying feeling as many things in life, you know, one of my favorite sayings, I think it's from Ram Dass, I'm not sure, is that suffering is great sandpaper to happiness. I think it's a beautiful saying because it's definitely been true in my case where I had to chase more and more of these achievements and work harder and harder. It was permission to be okay with myself as I was. And eventually 20 years of doing this, there was a lot of suffering and not being able to accept myself as I was thinking I have to become some perfect version of me and achieve all these things. There was a lot of suffering when you never feel like you're enough. And so eventually the suffering got too big for me. The fact is that eventually I really hit rock bottom or 
whatever the word is, I've tried to find a way to not be dramatic about it, but I can't because it was dramatic because the best way I can describe it is that everything in my world just went dark. And all these feelings of self-doubt or anxiety or fear or stress that I've been trying to run away from for 20 plus years, they just spilled out. Just because I was running away from them, I tried to deny all that still. Like even as I was really, really having trouble like literally functioning at work. I would zone out during meetings. I was making terrible decisions or no decisions at all. I think at this point, my husband and I, we said two words to each other over a period of like a month because I was catatonic and I couldn't, it's not that I didn't love him anymore. I just had no place of me available for anything else. Mia, my daughter, was 10 at the time. And I mean, I'd be playing a board game with her. She loved Connect Four, I remember. And literally I would find myself like completely frozen and looking in her eyes and she's like looking at me with this fear of what am I going to do? Like freak out and start yelling at her for something or start crying because that's the kind of stuff I was doing. And these feelings were spilling out. I tried to function and eventually I just couldn't. I lost all hope and I Mm -hmm. think hope is our ignition for living. And I wasn't talking to friends. I tried to avoid all social interactions at all costs. And it was obvious to everybody that something was very wrong, but I wouldn't take anyone's offers of help because when you get to that dark place, any offer of help is just a reminder of the failure that you are. And that was the loop in my head. At that point, it was just this vicious cycle that I talk about it now and it's a podcast, you can't see my face. It's still very fresh for me and it Mm -hmm. was a very, very difficult Mm -hmm. moment. And it was, this was the turning point because I literally felt I had a choice. I had to find a very different way to be. I couldn't go on that way anymore. I was introduced to, because the universe is very kind, an incredible teacher who became my spiritual teacher. Well, I think a lot of people will be very curious about your having all of these sort of happy or what we consider like happy things happening in our lives, but still inside feeling all of this turmoil. And in the book, you say happiness doesn't arise from making everything in our lives perfect. And it seems like you really imploded from that. Yeah. Because nothing actually happened outside of you that triggered this. It was this overwhelm of this isn't me, something's not right. And that was after you started creating happier the ass your first part of the irony yes yeah and so when you started happier and maybe you can just describe to our audience what happier was when you first started it so we started happier about a few years before the moment we're talking about now and i stumbled upon research and to emotional health and happiness and psychology, sociology, and economics. And I spent a couple of years diving into it. And what blew my mind was that there's all this research that shows that there's very simple practices that can fundamentally improve our well-being. And the practice that kept coming up over and over was gratitude. You know, more than 11,000 different studies show that developing a grateful mindset significantly improves not just our mood and well-being, but also our health lower chance of heart attacks and strokes and our relationship. And when I read all this, again, I come from a place where happiness was not something that was a priority. So when I read about this, to be honest, I thought it was all a bunch of BS. It seemed too simplistic, but I was at the time just really unable to feel joy in the present moment. And so I tried gratitude as an experiment for 30 days. I wrote down three good things about my day for 30 days. I announced it to my husband and my daughter that I was doing it. And I thought the experiment would fail and I would feel very smug about it. I actually found within a couple of weeks, a significant shift 
in my ability to find joy in the present moment in my regular life. And it was so powerful that that's where happier, the idea for happier came from. Because what we started with, I said, look, if gratitude can work for me, someone who is so experienced at suffering and all that stuff I mentioned, it can work for millions of people. We just have to make it accessible and fun and help people create a habit. So we started happier. And the first piece of happier was we created a mobile app to help you collect and share little moments of gratitude throughout the day. And they're really, really tiny moments of pausing to truly appreciate where you are. Because again, our brains are very adaptable. So we get used to all the good things in our lives. And also we all have a negativity bias, unfortunately. Yeah. All of our brains look out for the negative, the annoying. And so the practice of gratitude and these little moments and happier is simply asking the brain to go off of autopilot and to focus in on the good that's already there from a warm cup of coffee you're enjoying to a text from a friend when you need it. And so we launched Happier. To date, we have more than 7 million moments of gratitude that have been shared by people all over the world. These are truly the little moments that we all can find if we look closely in our everyday lives. So that was Happier. We launched it and as a mobile app and spent a couple of years building it and sharing it with the world. But like, inside, I was hardly functioning. So the gratitude exercise or practices weren't helping you at that time. You well, this is the thing. It's a great question. Gratitude, something I say a lot, and I write about this in the book, is gratitude is not a band-aid, right? Gratitude is truly magical. It's something I practice still. It's one of the five core happier skills I share in the book. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely one of the core skills, but gratitude alone is not enough. And that was the lesson I learned on my journey out of the darkness. And that is that gratitude is not a band-aid we can put on all these other difficult feelings we don't want to feel. Even as we're launching Happier and I was practicing gratitude and sharing with others, it couldn't do anything about all these underlying feelings that I was refusing to feel. Do you think that our culture plays a role in these expectations mm. around perfection that we're setting? And are we doing it to our children now? Well, you ask a question we could talk for hours about. A few thoughts on that. I do think that we live in a culture, perhaps not even perfection, but we definitely live in a culture where it's very external, where it's very achievement oriented, where we're all about hard work and grit and accomplishment. And the thing I always say is look at the front page of your local paper or a national paper like the New York Times. 99% of stories are not about people practicing gratitude or self-compassion or being kind to each other. They're stories about huge sacrifice. We're definitely a culture that has created, I feel, this idea that happiness is somewhere out there and if only you do certain things the right way, look a certain way, your life is a certain way, then you'll get this prize of happiness. And so I think it's a huge danger. We're going to take a little break here because we need to support our podcast and give it a little love from time to time. So this 30-second break gives a shout out to our sponsor, Yoga International. Yoga International offers a way to deepen your yoga practice by offering over 1,500 classes and workshops that you can take from the comfort of your home. Pretty cool. Whether you want to chill with restorative yoga, power up with some vinyasa classes, or check out Kundalini, they have got it all. And it's super affordable and much more convenient than running out to a studio. And better yet, there's a special offer for Untangle listeners. A 30-day free trial plus an Essentials of Meditation course, normally a $99 value. You definitely want to check this out at yogainternational.com slash untangle. That is yogainternational.com slash untangle. Now, back to Natalie. 
I have a 13 year old and as I've been going on this journey from building happier to going through my own journey and writing the book, you know, I'm very open. I talk about all this with her and there is this thirst that I feel from her and all her friends to learn how to take care of their inner lives in a way that they're not being taught in school and in a way that doesn't hang their well-being on necessarily their performance or achievement. We live outside of Boston in Newton in a very competitive high school school district. It's been written about even. There's been, unfortunately, some even suicides from all the pressure the kids feel. And I've given a talk there to you know 700 high school students. And so many of them have said to me, yeah, I feel like if I'm not good enough in school, if I don't get into a top college, if I don't have an amazing job, then I suck, I have failed, and I don't right. deserve to feel happy. Well, it's so sad. And then they judge themselves and they judge other people. And, yep. you know, how do you shift that culture of setting these really high expectations and judging yourself and others against those expectations? The idea to treat myself as I would a friend was absurd to me for most <laughs> of my life because. I thought that if I am kind to myself, that I'm never going to improve. I'm just going to be a lazy sloth sitting in my chair doing nothing. I'm never going to achieve anything. So instead, I beat myself up for every mistake that I made. Mistakes weren't mistakes. They were mortal sins. And I would just be so harsh to myself because I thought that was motivating. So mm -hmm. first of all, I know you know about all this research being done now that shows actually that self-compassion increases motivation and it increases the likelihood that you improve and achieve. So there's research on this now, but just using that as an example, because I do think that is a critical skill to our well-being. The thing is, after I learned all these skills and truly learned how to live, as I say, in peace with myself and my life, it's not like I'm any less ambitious. I am very ambitious. I have a lot of things I want to create. Writing this book was the hardest thing I've done. But it's that it comes from a place where I also practice, I take care of myself and I practice self-compassion. We need to teach kids, and this is a huge passion of mine, we need to teach these skills. And it is a skill, by the way. I often mm -hmm. talk about happiness isn't something you feel, it's something you do. So we need to teach these skills so that while you can want to achieve a lot of things, and that's amazing, and by the way, we feel really good when we work towards a meaningful goal, we also have to learn how to also be okay when things don't go right. We also have to learn and teach our kids how to be compassionate on the way to all of this achievement and how to separate the achievement from our self-worth. Because that was one of the huge things that I discovered that so much of my suffering came from. I connected my self-worth as a human being to my self-worth in terms of things I was achieving, even the way I was taking care of my family. And I connected that. So if something there wasn't going right, that meant I failed as a human being. Right. One of the greatest gifts for my spiritual teacher that I feel it's my duty to pass on. And I say this to my daughter all the time. In fact, I asked her the other day, what's the best piece of advice or something I've said to her in the last couple of years? And she said, when you tell me I'm a being and not a doing. Yeah. And I think that's the thing for us to learn is that we're beings, we're not doings. It doesn't mean we don't do, it doesn't mean we don't want or create or achieve, but it's that we do it from a place where we cultivate compassion and acceptance and ability to feel all the things and accept imperfections along the way. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. I love that you're talking about that. Is that sort of the genesis for the five core practices that you talk about in the book? Exactly. So there was many big discoveries on my path out of the darkness. And with gratitude, we're already learning that. That That's, by the way, the other thing that I think we need to shift in our culture is thinking of happiness not as a state of mind, but as an active 
action. So it's very hard to improve your muscles if you go to the gym once a year. Well, if you practice gratitude once a year on Thanksgiving, it's very hard to actually cultivate well-being. So I truly like I'm on a mission to help people start to think of happiness as a practice. I began to open up to all these practices of self-care and self-compassion and acceptance and all these things I never allowed myself to do. I created a set of my daily anchors. There's five happier skills that I practice every day, acceptance, gratitude, intentional kindness, the bigger why, connecting to your sense of meaning and self-care. And I made them my daily anchors. I would do them every day. And those are the anchors that got me through the storm. And that actually is the kernel of why I wanted to write the book, Mm -hmm. because I want to empower everybody else with those same anchors that they can practice in their own lives. And that's what the second half is all about, is I think I share something like 37 different little practices. And I ask you to pick the ones that really work for you to create a set of daily anchors, because you said this earlier, life is never going to be perfect. It's just not the case. So happiness to me means that, yes, we find more joy in everyday moments. And that's so crucial through gratitude and kindness and presence and mindfulness. But the other big piece of what I believe it means to truly be happy is to learn how to get through the difficult moments and difficult emotions with compassion and resilience. We have to practice that too. Well, I want Um, to talk about that for a second because I want to make this real for people. So let's say you're having a really bad day and your feelings get hurt or someone says something that just triggers some old memories. Like all of this happens to us all the time. In that moment, what is the way that you can practice reacting differently? Yeah, it's a great question because it happens to us all the time. So the first step, and this is the first skill, is acceptance. None of us want to feel difficult feelings. Research actually shows that when we acknowledge a difficult feeling that we're feeling, so literally write it down or say it to ourselves, the intensity and the length during which we feel it is reduced. So for example, let's say something happened to me yesterday, actually, that one of our partners that we're working with was really rude. And rudeness is actually something, again, we can have a whole separate conversation about. Rudeness is very difficult to experience. A tiny act of rudeness truly undercuts our core humanity, can ruin our whole day. The first piece is to practice acceptance and actually embrace and acknowledge that feeling. So you would say something or write something like, I feel really hurt that this person was so rude to me. I'm really upset or I'm really anxious. So that's the first piece. And in doing that, you're already reducing the intensity of that feeling. The second piece is one of my favorite practices. And I do this live with groups. I do this in my own life. I call it the lens of compassion. And I resisted this for a very long time. I want to be very honest. This was not an easy one for me, but it changed a lot. And so the lens of compassion practice is very simple. Think of this person who was just rude to you or difficult or, you know, to you in some way. And think of something that might have happened to them earlier today or yesterday to make them act this way. Make up a story in your Mm -hmm. mind. It doesn't have to be true. So someone cuts you off, make up a story that they're rushing because their kid is sick. And a couple of things happen. It's actually one of the most powerful exercises I've found in my life. So the first thing to remember is when you practice the lens of compassion, it's not about letting the rude people off the hook. That was my resistance to it. The lens of compassion practice is to help you preserve your own emotional well-being and not allow this difficult experience ruin your day and ruin how you feel. The second thing is it asks us to practice compassion. Compassion is recognizing that we're all imperfect, that we all struggle. And so when you make up this story in your mind, it can be a really short story about what might this person be struggling with that is acting them to act this way. Compassion has been shown to dramatically increase our feelings of well-being, 
patience and reduce anxiety and stress. And so that to me would be the one, two steps. So the first step is to acknowledge how you feel, however difficult it is by writing it down or saying it. And the second is to practice the lens of compassion where you tap into your own compassion for the goal of preserving your own happiness and emotional well-being. And you think of what the person might be struggling with to Mm -hmm. be acting this way. So you're practicing acceptance and you're practicing kindness through compassion. Those are the two happier skills. Something I talk about in my book is that we all have an emotional immune system. So just like we have a physical immune system, right? That when we get a bug or a germ, our immune system does what? The first step is it accepts that there is a germ. It looks at it without judgment, says, what is this thing? Oh, this thing is not a good thing. And then it kicks into action and helps our body process it. Now, our emotional immune system functions the same way. Let's say to your example, someone is rude to us, so we feel a reaction. If we don't allow ourselves to acknowledge that reaction, we cannot have our emotional immune system actually do its work. But if we practice acknowledging, we're like, yes, this is how I'm feeling, then we're allowing our emotional immune system, what we all have, some psychologists call it psychological immune system, it becomes our ally. It helps us get through it, but the only way we can strengthen it is by letting it do its job. If we never allow our emotional immune system to experience, to truly acknowledge stress or sadness or regret or self-doubt, then it doesn't learn how to get through it with more resilience. And again, it's something we often forget. We actually can get through these difficult feelings. Acknowledging them actually makes that easier to do. We feel them less intensely, but the only way we can do that is when we give ourselves permission to not try to resist them. To me, that's one of the biggest discoveries for you was not to push away those feelings, but to acknowledge them and to not feel like when you feel that way, you're a sad or angry person, but that you're having a sad or angry, difficult emotion. We all have different emotions, ones that are wonderful to feel, ones that are difficult to feel, but we have them. We are not them. But also for me, the greatest strength I get is by reminding myself every time that both of what it did for me when I didn't allow myself to feel them, but also I actually have a practice about this in the book of connecting to your strength of remind yourself of a difficult experience you've gone through. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. think of how you were able to get through it. Remind yourself that you have gotten through difficult emotions, that you have gotten through difficult experiences. So that's why I made it a practice in my book of connecting to your strength because we forget we have it. And that exactly, you're right. It's been a huge discovery for me. And there's another little part to it, which is then sharing those feelings honestly with others, which is vulnerability, which is also very, very difficult. I love how Brene Brown talks about it when she says, vulnerability in you is courage and in myself is weakness, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's so true for most of us. I thought the world would collapse if I ever allowed anyone to know that I wasn't feeling well, that I had self-doubt, that I had fear. So for me, I had to start doing it because it was just too much to keep covered up. But those practices go hand in hand. It's acknowledging and accepting these difficult emotions on our own, and then also learning how to share them with others. Mm -hmm. And my fear was always that they would think I'm a failure in life, I'm a failure as a sealed happier. And the opposite happened every time. The opposite happened. People embraced me. People opened up. And more often than not, what people said to me is, wow, it's so refreshing how honest it can be. I feel a little bit more permission to do it myself. You also say in the book, what if everything is exactly as it should be? What do you mean when you say that? I think all of us can relate to the voice in our head saying, this is not how it should be, right? You're on vacation and it's raining. 
this is not how it should be. And you get really, we get upset and anxious or you're in traffic all of a sudden. And you're like, this is not how it should be. Because we have an idea of how reality should be, of how we like it. And when it doesn't agree with us, we cause ourselves, I call it being in the valley of suffering. Mm -hmm. We put ourselves in the valley of suffering because we decide that it's not how it should be. And so a practice that I use is for a moment, whatever experience you're having, when you find yourself stuck in this, this is not how it should be. Imagine for a moment, what if this is how it should be? Not because I'm asking you to like traffic or rain on your vacation, but if you just allow for a minute that this is how it should be, what might you learn from that? How might that inform your actions? What if this is how it's supposed to be? So the thing that I also find useful is when you're finding yourself fighting with reality or when I find myself like being in the valley of suffering, if I ask myself, is this helpful? So is this helpful has been a really powerful question. Is a way to also come out of this valley of suffering uh, when things are not as they should be? Because most of the time, as you said, you know, we're worrying and anxious and upset over something we cannot control. Exactly. And when you talk about in the five core practices, most of the five are things that we ourselves can do. Acceptance, gratitude, the bigger why, and self-care. But what about like intentional kindness? And is that kindness to yourself or... For the person that makes you mad or triggers you or you feel jealousy or whatever it is, how do you deal with another person or are these practices really about your own self? It's a great question and a couple of thoughts on that. So these practices, first and foremost, as are tools for you to help you take care of your emotional health, to help you optimize yeah. your emotional health. Absolutely. But here's the magic. The magic is that when you do that, it will positively affect people around you. The greatest gift for me of what I went through and learning the skills that I have and coming to a place where I live with so much more light and joy and hope and peace than I ever have, the biggest gift hasn't been just how I feel. It's seeing how this has positively affected my husband, seeing how this has affected our relationship, seeing how this has affected my 13-year-old daughter. And that she is more at ease with herself. She's more at ease with me. We have a much more honest and open relationship because of this. So it keeps going. The happier community. So the work I do, I've been able to create better from a place of more giving and light. And so it's affecting so many others. And the last chapter in my book, I actually call becoming a force of good in the world. Because Mm -hmm. the magic of all of this is when you practice these skills for yourself, you will positively affect people you care about. This is the way that I think we can change the world. And I don't mean to be dramatic. I'm actually being very literal, especially in the times we live in, where there's a lot of difficult feelings in so many ways that this is the way we can change the world. Because the thing I say is people who are happy don't start wars. People who are happy, research shows are more productive, they're healthier, they are more creative. Everything I'm saying is backed in scientific research and research shows that happiness spreads, that it's contagious in the best possible ways. I would normally ask, how has writing this book changed you? But I think everything you've talked about (laughs) in that direction. But what I really loved, and I want people to buy this book, probably for this one reason, is the love letter that you wrote to your daughter at the end of it, because it's so heartfelt. You kind of want to... Yeah. And what happened with that? Yeah. Yeah. What happened with that actually? So I turned 40 a few years, two years ago and I said, I love lists. And 40 (sighs) was the time after two years of just 
going through the darkness and beginning my journey. And so I sat down and I started making a list on my birthday. What have I learned about being happier? And about a couple bullets in, I realized I was writing it for my daughter, for Mia. Mm -hmm. And so I made it a letter to Mia. And when she turned 13 this past summer, I gave it to her. I'm so grateful you mentioned that because again, and the other day, by the way, this is a fun a short story. So, so of course she has an advanced copy as she should. Uh, the book is dedicated to her and she was on her bed glancing through it. And I walked in and she looked at me with this hugest smile and she said, mama, I am so proud of you. Not just because you wrote this book, but because you just went through all that stuff when you found a way to be better. And mm. I gave her this hug and I was crying because of realizing just what a gift it's been for her. The greatest gift for me of going through all of this has been what I've seen the effect on people I love and the letter yeah, to my so daughter beautiful. really captures all of these things that I've learned. If you're a parent, the only thing you want for your child is to be happy and healthy and live a meaningful life. Is there so, one piece of advice that you think is the most important or do you think it's the list? I think it's a list, but I guess to raise up a couple levels, I'd say the first and the last thing on the list is it's all about love. Yeah. And when I say love, I don't mean romantic love. I don't mean even love between a parent and a child. I mean this universal deep sense of love and openness and hope. Yeah. And I think it's all about that. And that's one of the hardest things for me has been to practice self-love. Mm -hmm. It still is a challenge. It's still very much a challenge I have to practice, but if I had a magic wand and if I could get everybody in the world to experience and be able to practice something tomorrow, I think it would be self-love because yeah. when you have that foundation, from there, you create love for others. From there, you are able to help others. You can't give what you don't have. And so my biggest advice, my biggest thing would be to cultivate, to embrace yourself as you are, to not seek perfection and mm -hmm. to cultivate that self-acceptance and self-love because that just enriches so much of how you can share that with others and enrich their lives in the same way. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you for writing this book. I know everyone is going to want to just run out and get a copy because it's just such a beautiful book and keep it by their bedside because I do think it's a practice and you need to be reminded. It's not like you read these books yep. once and you've got it. Every day is another example or another opportunity yep. to practice what you're learning. And so these are Every conversation I have, it reminds me of something new I need to practice or something I need to continue practicing. So well, true. I'm so yeah. grateful that you, yeah. you know, we've had this conversation. It's been wonderful. I'm grateful for this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Natalie for being our guest today. You can order her book, Happier Now, at all major booksellers. For more information, check out happier.com and check out her TEDx Boston talk. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email me at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.